Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Douglas Bell. Today, I'll be speaking with Chad Pearson, a lecturer in history at the University of North Texas. We will be discussing his new book, Capitals Terrorist, Klansmen, Lawmen, and Employers in the Long 19th Century, published by the University of North Carolina Press. Chad, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here. Great. Uh, Can you tell the listeners a little bit about your background? Certainly. So um, I teach uh, history at the University of North Texas, uh, but I'm not from Texas. I grew up in Rhode Island uh, in the Northeast and uh, went to school in Massachusetts and and New York State for graduate school. Uh, And um, the last 10, 12 years or so, I taught at a community college, which is very much in the news these days for its... um, lack of free speech protections, a place called Collin College. It's it's out there. Uh, and so I left that uh, institution and now teach at University of North Texas. I've, uh, I'm a labor, I identify as a labor historian. Uh, I really like, um, you know, understanding power relations. And, uh, and so, yeah, so that's, uh, that's a bit about me. All right. How did you uh, come to write this book? So uh, I liked labor history quite a bit. I'm really interested in uh, in class uh, class conflict uh, broadly defined, and I realized that there was a lot of work on workers, which is great. I love that, uh, but maybe less so about um, about employers and uh, anti unionism, which is such an important uh, part of of history. And um, and so I wrote a, a previous book on the open shop movement, which is the anti-labor union movement. And uh, I still had, there's still so much more to say. These people, these business people and their allies, so interesting. And um, and and I wanted to really look at, you know, the, the, the central question I had was, you know, what are the forces in society that make the lives of ordinary people miserable? And, uh, and, and so, so that's the sort of, overarching question. And, and, um, I explored that in, uh, some graphic detail and, um, you know, really just, uh, you know, wanted to see, um, you know, these different, uh, different managerial techniques. You know, one thing that, um, sort of gets my goat a lot is the, uh, use of the passive voice when describing these things. Wages were low. Conditions were bad. Right. I wanted to shine a spotlight on the folks responsible for, um, uh, for, for giving ordinary people, that is working class people, a hard time. Right. So um, in your book, these are the, the people who are you call the terrorist, I guess. So who are the terrorists? The terrorists, yes. So, uh, so I, have a, I, I sought to really um, save the word terrorism from the Islamophobes. And I know terrorism is both a provocative word and a slippery word, right? It's, it's provocative, it's, you know, sort of gets your attention. It's uh, uh, slippery because, you know, there's a saying, one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. And so uh, I 
recognized that there was some scholarship that looked at working class expressions of working class radicalism as as examples of terrorism. Fair enough. You know, you're bombing things. There's no doubt about that. But what about when employers and other elites were involved in violent activity? Right. Um, In the scholarship, we seldom see uh, historians identify them in that word. But if you look at the language um, of workers who experienced uh, some of the worst types of of, uh, uh, anti-union violence, they did use the word terrorism and terrorist to to describe these people. So the people I'm interested in include uh, members of the Ku Klux Klan in the uh, Reconstruction period. Now, I don't think any person is going to push back against that. That's clear. They're terrorists. But I also argue that they were um, kind of like employers. Uh, we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, I also look at uh, organized businessmen who were involved in various vigilante activities, right, um, uh, including um, uh, kidnapping and, and murder, right? Uh, that seems to be terrorism to me, uh, to achieve a political end, to use violence to achieve a political end. Um and I look at uh, stock growers in the in the West who are involved in violent activities, and um, and and uh, business people of uh, at various levels. So these are the the folks who I identify very provocatively as terrorists. All right. Yeah. So in addition to your terrorists, you have other categories of people who are around the terrorist um, people you call enablers and narrative makers. So uh, who are these groups and how do they kind of facilitate the, the behaviors of the terrorist? Certainly. So I um, I guess I'm somewhat of an old fashioned Marxist in that I believe that the state that is the um, the federal state and local governments uh, generally serve the interests of those people at the top of society. Um, and so we're talking about judges, uh, politicians, uh, the police, the National Guard, uh, federal troops. And so these were the folks who, in the context of labor management confrontations, generally, though there were exceptions, generally sided with management, okay? That might mean injunctions, that might mean um, cops beating strikers, that might mean National Guardsmen shutting down things. And so uh, I refer to these people as the enablers. And so um, they enable a lot of... um, you know, inequality in, in society. And they also sort of look the other way when the terrorists I'm interested in, these were the folks from the private sector, were engaged in various union busting activities. Um, and so uh, judges were more inclined to um, fine or jail striking workers than they were to discipline or punish um you know, elites, uh, bosses who are involved in in actual, you know, confrontations, physical confrontations with with workers. And so I refer to these folks in the public sector as the enablers. And then the narrative creators, another category I describe in the book, are the um, were the folks who um, wrote about labor management confrontations or wrote about business and labor. And I'm talking about journalists, I'm talking about clergymen, and in some cases, even uh, novels, uh, novelists. And so these were the folks who sort of legitimized uh, the uh, uh, 
what I call the terrorists by referring to them as good citizens and and referring to workers who are who are engaged in um, unrest as sort of the dangerous classes. And so there were lots and lots of publications that were explicitly anti-union and created a narrative that um, that shaped the consciousness, I think, of many ordinary people that is readers. And so um, so I'm interested chiefly in the terrorists. I look at their enablers and I look at the narrative creators who seek to, um, again, legitimize this, this climate of repression. Right. And so these individuals all kind of, you all, at least the terrorists, especially you discuss, you discuss them using three different types of violence, hard, soft, and hybrid. So can you maybe go into a bit of detail about the differences of the violence that you're looking at? Certainly. I, I like the question. Uh, so a hard form of violence would be uh, kidnapping, beating, killing. Uh, these are physically uh, abusive forms of methods designed to um, terrorize uh, workers and to eliminate the threat, certainly in the case of, say, a lynching um, and I have examples of that in my book. A soft form of terrorism might be something like a, a firing, a blacklisting, book burning. These are events that uh, created um, psychological trauma uh, for their victims. And so in some ways, a firing and a blacklisting, this is a slow, uh, soft form of, of pain, right? I mean, to feel that sort of insecurity, unable to secure work. Uh, and, and workers themselves and their allies described the blacklist as a form of terrorism. Okay, so that, that would be a soft form. A hybrid form, I offer one example of a hybrid form. This is what I call the drive-out campaign, also known as the run-out campaign. So this is how it worked. Um, you might have Klansmen or business people, and they're upset about what they considered to be the presence of an outside agitator. They wanted that person gone. So they would approach that person or persons and say, you better be out of town by the time the sun comes up or, you know, in two hours. And if that person complied, right, here we have a soft version, right? That is that person's leaving voluntarily, okay? Still, there's there's trauma there. But if that person did not, that might we might see uh, kidnapping and even murder, okay? So it was their choice, right? It could be bloodless or it could be, could be violent. And so I refer to that as a hybrid form. And so the, the, the subjects in my book engaged in all three types of what I call terrorism. All right. So your uh, first chapter looks at the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, during the Reconstruction period when the Klan kind of first organizes itself. Um, as you mentioned, no one's going to kind of argue that they weren't terrorists, but can you discuss how they fit into your idea of capitalists and how did they try to control labor? Certainly. So um, I argue that the Klan functioned like a uh, employer's association. Okay. So it was a cross-class group of white people throughout the South who joined the Klan, but those who called the shots tended to be the downwardly mobile uh, plantation owners, right? These are the folks who, who lost land and labor as a result of the Civil War and as a result of what W.B. Du Bois famously called the general strike. So the question then became, in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, how to um, maintain plantations, how to uh, find labor. And the Klan really functioned uh, in a way to... Um, to, what the Klan did was it forced former slaves back onto plantations, back onto farms, back into uh, kitchens. And... Um, 
and so um, so it was fundamentally about uh, maintaining the, uh, the 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 ruling class in the South uh, by using force. And so I'm primarily interested here in exploitation rather than hate. Many folks, civil rights groups, who talk about the Klan historically and in the present, refer to hate groups. I'm not doubting the presence of hate, but what the Klan really wanted was they wanted workers to shut up and take it, right? And and who they and of course they did kill they they and and used violence. Um, they killed something like three thousand, at least three thousand uh, people. But they're especially contemptuous of the so-called outside agitators, the carpetbaggers, the um, uh, the outside the the educators, because these people took the labor force, the formerly enslaved, and introduced them to ideas. Right when Klansmen, planters, planter vigilantes, what they wanted was a stable workforce. So the Klan engaged in these three types of um, of terrorism: right, whippings, uh, kidnappings uh, on the hard end. Um, they uh, uh, they blacklisted, uh, you know, uh, outside agitators, and they engaged in a lot of drive out campaigns against uh, uh, outside teachers, often white uh, white teachers. So um, they uh, fit in uh, in my overall story because they um, really mass, you know, really showed the ability to combine management with vigilantism. Okay, interesting. Um, your next kind of turn to. Uh, these organizations called Law and Order Leagues, and um, they're organization by a man named J. West Goodwin. So can you talk about this character who makes occurring reappearances in your book, and what are these, also these Law and Order Leagues that he is involved in? Sure. So J. West Goodwin was a, a printer. He owned a print shop. He had served in the Civil War on the Union side, and uh, he was very much a booster in his adopted home of Sedalia, Missouri, which is you know about um, oh, a couple hours from uh, hour and a half from Kansas City in the mid to north uh, west part of the state, part of Missouri. And uh, he's sort of um, very much a booster. He's involved in business organizations. Sedalia really wants to. Uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, make the city a, a, a prominent place, um, not just in Missouri, but nationally. And um, he um, uh, he has problems with uh, printers at his own shop who want to unionize and he fires people. And then in 1886, we have this massive strike, uh, Southwest Rail Strike. And uh, this was, um, you know, quite the confrontation involving, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of, of protesters, and Sedalia was a hub of it. And so J. West Goodwin and a number of his colleagues form a Law and Order League. And what they did was they um, they armed themselves and they helped um, escort scabs, that is strike breakers, uh, to, uh, to work on Jay Gould's uh, big, uh, big railroad. And uh, he was, uh, J. West Goodwin, during the course of it, used his newspaper to promote the Law and Order League movement, which uh, expanded beyond the borders of Sedalia. So it um, it emerged in a number of railroad towns throughout the Midwest um, and Kansas, and it was there's a chapter in St. Louis. Uh, and so... Um, he uh, uh, he singled out union leaders, including Martin Irons, who was the the leader a leader of the Knights of Labor, and uh, the Knights of Labor ultimately lose this this battle. And but J. West Goodwin uh, continues to uh, denounce uh, labor. He um, remains active in the Law and Order League movement. 
and uses his paper to really stigmatize uh, Martin Irons and others. So um, he uh, he's an organizer. He's a He's a booster, very anti-labor, uh, has had his own problems at his workplace, but is uh, wants to spread the, the message of anti-unionism well beyond the borders of Sedalia. In these uh, law and order leagues, what uh, besides outside Sedalia, what is their main function objective? Uh, basically, they want to um, uh, they boycott uh, or they blacklist Knights of Labor members. Um, they uh, uh, they escort uh, strike breakers. Uh, they um, are probably in a, I would assume an intimidating force to to organize labor. And so, uh, what they do is they seek to promote a climate of law and order, and in the process of of promoting themselves sort of stigmatize uh, unions as being law-breaking um, entities. And so they, um, you know, they're, they're very much, uh, very much the, the so-called best citizens, uh, both from the private and the public sector, hold membership in, uh, in these organizations. And it's a, kind of a way to kind of promote, um, you know, uh, industrial stability and, and to insist that that industrial stability and growth is was incompatible with uh, with labor unionism. All right. Can I ask, uh, how did you run across the J. West Goodwin? He seems like such a fascinating character, and he doesn't even. I mean, he doesn't have a Wikipedia page. So, I was just wondering where where you found him from. He's such a colorful character and involved in all these labor anti labor movements in the U.S. Yeah, so I um I had found a reference to him as being one of these leaders of both the Law and Order League and the Citizens Alliances. These are um, other anti-union groups, which we'll talk about in a bit. Uh, but you know, uh, he, there wasn't much written about him, and so then I discovered that he owned and edited a newspaper, which is a wonderful source to really get to to understand his uh, his thinking. And then I I came across. Um, him in, in, in archives and uh, in anti-union, anti-labor union organization uh, publications. And I realized that he's uh, such an interesting figure. Um, I found some other kind of wild things about him. You know, he would, uh, uh, you know, denounce, I mean, he would write about much more than labor. He would uh, comment on on, on um, social activities in Sedalia, including a play that he thought was the worst play that ever happened in all of Sedalia. And the actresses of the play then came and broke into his office and beat him uh, with, uh, they whipped him. Uh, and so this was quite embarrassing for him. Then he got uh, uh, beaten by the owner of the, um, uh, the, the, Opera House the next day, and he uh, uh, had some serious medical problems for <laughs> for a while. But he continued to uh, to to be this anti union figure, and uh, you know, so just uh, really really an interesting uh, uh, figure who uh, uh, was was just so central to the anti labor union movement in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century. Yeah. Uh, so after you talk about Sedalia in the Law and Order Leagues, you mix move to. Idaho and the steps taken by mine owners. Uh, what was happening in Idaho in the late 19th century, and uh, why were workers going on strike? 
Right. They were striking and they were locked out. They basically, um, there are two issues really. The first is they wanted to have all workers, uh, irrespective of the sort of job they did, they wanted to have the same wage. This is $3.50 a day. And so this uh, union's, uh, uh, workers form a union in the late 1880s. And there's a big confrontation in 1892 and another one in 1899. And so uh, the first issue was really about, um, you know, uh, uh, equity in, in, in workers and employers uh, locked them out. They brought in uh, non-unionist scabs. You see violent confrontations. And then the governor of um, Idaho uh, declared martial law, federal troops and national guardsmen come in and they throw these people into these makeshift um uh, they, they throw uh, protesting workers into these makeshift uh, prisons known as bullpens, right? And so these were really cramped and disgusting. And um, in 1892, out of that, some workers talked about the need to form a bigger union. And the following year, in 1893, they formed the Western Federation of Miners, in part because of the repression that they experienced at the hands of both public and private anti-union figures. Um, and then... Uh, uh, you know, miners are sort of skilled workers. They're hard to replace. And so most of the mines, with one exception, began to recognize the union. The one exception was the um, Bunker Hill and Sullivan Company. And so uh, workers tried to unionize that for a long time. And in 1899, there was a um, uh, explosion that on a by a train filled with unionized workers. Some people said the workers did it deliberately. Others said it was agent provocateurs who were responsible. This led to another round of um, another uh, case of martial law, federal and, and national troops, and more of the um, the bullpens. And so the question there was, you know, workers wanted wanted closed shops. They wanted uh, employers to recognize the union. The Bunker Hill and Sullivan Company was unwilling to do it. Things escalated, and we see a tremendous amount of of repression. And so uh, I discuss how horrible the conditions were in these these prisons and. Uh, and and uh, you know uh, a few several uh, uh, incarcerated men died. Um, the guards were very harsh, and racism played a part here. The um, the federal government brought in uh, black troops in an area where most of the workers were were whites or immigrants and native born. And we know racism crossed class lines, but this was a case of really, I think, divide and conquer, really trying to um, inflame racial tensions on the part of, of the state. And so some of the grievances articulated by the um, incarcerated workers were in fact racist, but I'm sure that management and the state knew precisely what they were doing in inflaming that kind of racial tension. So uh, this was an episode of um, uh, incarceration, one might say mass incarceration, because they did not distinguish between violent and nonviolent workers in either 1892 or in 1899. And uh, at least one historian has said this was the first use in 1892, the first time we see concentration camps. Okay. Uh, other historians have said it was in Cuba, that is the Spaniards introduced concentration camps in Cuba in 1897. But if um, we're to take, the, if we look at this case, we've got 1892. So uh, how about that, America?
Um, what were the the roles of some of the enablers in this case? I I remember reading uh, talking about a lot about San Francisco being involved in this uh, Idaho mine case. Right. Well, some of the um, the uh, uh, National Guard or the, excuse me, the federal troops or the excuse me, the National Guard was led by this guy named Curtis, who was a vigilante in California in the 1850s, and so we see um, folks this kind of fluid relationship between, you know, um, law, you know, those who, who engage in vigilante activities and those who will later join um, police departments or the National Guard. And so some of the folks who were involved in crushing these rebellions in northern Idaho had their own history in uh, vigilante organizations, including um, some of the the mine owners were involved in the Montana vigilantes in the 1860s. Um, this guy Curtis was involved in the California, the San Francisco vigilantes. So, uh, what I tried to do in this chapter, as well as in the book as a whole, is is to trace this long history of, um, you know, vigilantism well into the the turn of the century, and uh, make the case that you know there's there's quite a bit of continuity here. All right. Um, from the mountains of Idaho, you go next to uh, Florida. And look at uh, striking workers down in Florida and focus on a man, uh, one of your terrorists named D.B. McKay. So can you talk about uh, McKay and how did he terrorize his workers? Yes. Yeah, so uh, Tampa, Florida is uh, an interesting case because what we see is this massive cigar worker strike uh, organized by a group called La Resistencia, kind of an anarchist union. And these are Cuban, Cuban Afro-Cubans, some Italians, quite a, uh, an eclectic group of workers who shut down uh, many of these uh, cigar factories. Tampa is a major cigar producing uh, city. And um, you have a citizens association there, which is a very benign sounding uh, elite organization. And one of the leaders is a guy named D.B. McKay, who was a newspaper owner and editor, uh, who through marriage was very much connected to the cigar industry in in Tampa, Florida. And uh, what these folks do, uh, members of them, is they break into the homes of about 13 members of La Resistencia. They uh, put them on a boat and they bring them to Honduras, an island off of Honduras. They leave them there and then they come back. And uh, the the uh, those who are deported to Honduras eventually make it back. It takes a little while, a few weeks. Um, and uh, but uh, after this happens, there are many there are other employers uh, who have their own labor problems, and they say, "What a wonderful solution to the labor problem! Too bad it's illegal." You know, kidnapping people and then deporting them, and so this made national news. And uh, ultimately, the, um, the, the kidnapped uh, victims make it back to Tampa. They contact the state, the uh, Justice Department. Uh, the Justice Department um, uh, do an investigation and, dis- and uh, conclude that there are no laws broken or that they couldn't find any, anybody responsible, which was nonsense. And, um, and they basically got away. So the enabler there uh, was, um, uh, you know, the district attorney from, uh, he was based in Jacksonville and, uh, yeah, and they got away. And so, uh, this idea of kidnapping, uh, became contagious. Other, uh, employers used it, including in Colorado later, but, uh, but Tampa was really the, um, you know, one of the, the pioneering sites. 
That's insane. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you also link this um, kidnapping events in Tampa to the Second Seminole War. Can you explain how this connection between uh, capitalism and the Second Seminole War and kidnapping is connected? Sure, sure. Totally speculative, but I said, why not? Let's go, let's go for it. Um, D.B. McKay was also what we might consider an amateur historian and wrote a lot about uh, Florida's history, including the Second Seminole War. Now, for uh, audience members who don't know about the Second Seminole War, it involved um, – it happened from 1835 to 1842, um, and uh, it um, – one of the techniques used by the U.S. military was to kidnap the leaders of the Seminole Indians and then send them, of course, well, kidnap the leaders to divide them from the rank and file, but ultimately to send the Seminoles to uh, uh, to uh, to what is today Oklahoma. And uh, so I speculate here. I said, you know what? There were at, in 1901, there were writers who said this Tampa kidnapping, they were, this was the first time they were real pioneers. I said, no, no, wait a minute. One of the guys involved knew about the Seminole War, uh, wrote favorably about the white um, soldiers and uh, uh, investors uh, in Florida who were uh, participants and beneficiaries of it. Let's think maybe, maybe, just maybe this was on his mind in 1901, right? And so you can see parallels between – they're imperfect, uh, but they're there – between the, uh, the, the, the government's role in, in kidnapping and deporting Seminole Indians uh, with the, the kidnapping and deporting of immigrant laborers in uh, 1901. So it's quite a big leap there, I know, but uh, I felt the urge to say something original about a story that other historians have written about. So uh, I'm not the first to write about this kidnapping. Others have done so, but I wanted to um, you know, give it a, a, a different and a new and innovative spin. Yeah, definitely caught my attention. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, uh yeah, next you go to the emergence of Citizens Alliances, and we come back to J. West Goodwin. Um, so what were these Citizens Alliance, what were these organizations, and what was uh, Goodwin's role in the creation of these organizations? Right. So at the turn of the century, during the so-called progressive era, which I call the uh, misnamed progressive era, because we have so much in the way of racism and union busting and eugenics and all of that, um, during that time, we see the anti-union movement, employers sort of reframing the movement in a way that seemed more palatable and even progressive uh, to ordinary people. And so one of the key features of this movement was the use of language, uh, right? And so um, the uh, we see the emergence of a number of citizens' alliances, um, as well as the umbrella group, the Citizens Industrial Association of America. And so I th let's pause for a moment. One hears Citizens Alliance. That doesn't sound especially threatening, right? Uh, and so, you know, we're all citizens. And so rather Law and Order League sounds a little bit more ominous. Maybe not. I don't know. But Citizens Alliance sounds pretty progressive, frankly. And the Citizens Alliances really led by employers, but they included lawyers and clergymen as well as anti-union workers and journalists. Um, they... Uh, th Rather than fight the so-called dangerous classes, they presented themselves as protecting or uh, uh, 
the, the common man, the common people, right, for the protection of the common people was the slogan of the uh, Citizens Industrial Association of America. So what that meant was protecting the non-union worker, the small business people. And they promoted what we what uh, industrial relations scholars refer to as an open shop. An open shop workplace is a workplace where you don't have to be a member of a union to join. It's uh, non-union and non-union. In practice, it meant union busting. Okay, it, it's about individualism as opposed to collectivism, right? About promoting the, the rights of the individual worker as opposed to uh, the collective good of the, the working class. And so these citizens' alliances spread all over the country beginning in the um, er, very early part of the, uh, the, the 20th century. And one of the main organizers was J. West Goodwin. J. West Goodwin was an organizer of the Law and Order Leagues in Sedalia and elsewhere in the 18, mid-1880s. 15 years later, right, he's a central figure in organizing citizens' alliances in places like Sedalia, of course, Scranton, Pennsylvania, um, uh, Joplin, Missouri, uh, Pensacola, Florida. He's all over. He claimed to have organized about 30 citizens' alliances. And he referred to himself as the Christopher Columbus of the Citizens' Alliance movement. Right, a real pioneer, and so this is a you know a, 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 a an area of pride for J. West Goodwin to build these organizations led by businessmen that were anti-union, that promoted the open shop principle, and but in practice blacklisted labor activists and sometimes engaged in vigilante violence. Was Goodwin a driver of these, or did these organizations like know about him because of his? past? Like, how did he get called in to go around and organize all of these? That's a good question. I, I don't know exactly. I mean, I, we know that he was a prominent figure, at least in some circles, in the 1880s, right? So the Nation magazine uh, and other sources wrote about him and wrote about Sedalia. So we can assume that that information spread somehow. Um, but in the case of Scranton, Pennsylvania, where he organized a big one, uh, he just mentions that, or excuse me, a member of the, the Citizens Alliance in Scranton mentioned that, you know, we called him in and then we had all these people who came and we, you know, we could not, um, fill, you know, uh, find a room big enough to fit everybody who wanted to participate in this, this anti-union organization. And so, uh, so he's, he's well known. They call him you know, um, call them in to consult with employers who have a labor problem, uh, you know, during strikes, and he offers some advice. Now, I should add, these organizations were hyper-secretive, and secrecy is a theme we see throughout, from the Klan to the Law and Order Leagues, all the way up through the Citizens Alliances and beyond. So it's it's hard to get concrete information, but, you know, I, I, I try to... Um, you know, make informed uh, assessments based on the information we do have. Right. Silences of the archive. Um, So you mentioned Scranton, which is uh, kind of plays the central place in this chapter. Can you talk about how these citizens alliances worked in Scranton, Pennsylvania? They were specifically targeting the United Mine Workers Association. So what was uh, what was the citizens alliance doing to the mine workers? Right. So uh, there was a a series of strikes climaxing in 1902, the great anthracite uh, coal strike. And um, at that point, there were uh, citizens alliances in Wilkes-Barre and uh, Hazleton and and Scranton. These are all the uh, the centers uh, around the um, the mining um, 
operations and, and hence the mining strike. And so they, um, it's hard to know for sure um, because the governor sent in the National Guard and there was a lot of other public sector forces that were involved in, in violent strike breaking and that kind of thing, as well as the coal and iron police. Uh, but um, the Citizens Alliance uh, put out ads in the paper saying that they will give money to those who um, can identify uh, workers who uh, engaged in you know violent activities and that sort of thing. Uh, they also advertised um, themselves. They wanted to get uh, members and they talked about their commitment to law and order. Uh, I think some of whom were deputized by uh, held membership in the coal and iron uh, police and whatnot. But a lot of it was framing right in the newspaper and um, through building the organization. That is, they they wanted to offer an alternative to to unionism and build uh, a coalition of of small business people and medium sized business people, as well as workers who didn't want to uh, hold union membership. So, mostly public relations is what they did in Scranton. And were they successful? Uh, so the the result of the strike led to. This is a massive strike uh, anywhere. I've heard 140, 150,000 workers involved. Um, we have Theodore Roosevelt intervening. Uh, uh, Mitchell, the John Mitchell, the head of the mine workers, calls it off because uh, Roosevelt forms a commission that sought to investigate conditions in the mines. And um, this is October. By March, the uh, committee uh, gives their reports. They reward um, the miners, uh, nine hour day instead of a 10 hour day and, um, uh, a modest pay raise, but they don't offer them union recognition. So the open shop remains in place in the mines. So most historians look at this outcome and see it as a win for the workers, I would argue it was not a win for the workers because what it did was it further legitimized the open shop principle, which is precisely what the Citizens Alliances fought for and continue to fight for. So after this, uh, this, this strike and reward, which Theodore Roosevelt referred to as a square deal, the Citizens Industrial Association of America will put out a publication called the square deal. And they invoked Theodore Roosevelt, right? So Theodore Roosevelt becomes this figure who employers active in these anti-union organizations um, really loved. They, they really liked uh, Theodore Roosevelt. So uh, I'm cutting against uh, a, a, a fa- not famous, a uh, well-entrenched position. And that is that the uh, mine workers themselves won. And I'm saying, no, this is a win for the open shop movement. So you, in the last chapter, you continue to look at the Citizens Industrial Association of America, and you specifically focus on a man by the name of Owen Wister. Um, Who was Wister and what role did he play in these associations? Owen Wister was the father of the Western genre of fiction. Right. So he famously wrote a book called The Virginian, which is about this uh, very subordinate cowboy um, who goes west and he's he's very um, respectful to the big landowners and his boss, this judge. He hates rustlers. He would never engage in rustling. Rustling is the the theft of, of cattle. 
And so the book is loosely based on the Johnson County War. The Johnson County War, or at least parts of it, involved these stock uh, growers from Cheyenne who went in uh, with a 70-person kill list, 50 of them, and they ended up um, uh, killing a couple of so-called rustlers. These were small landowners. The Wyoming Stock Growers Association wanted the land, and this was a public relations disaster for them. Okay, this uh, looked really bad. Uh, there was a uh, the they were um, try they were uh, indicted, but they were never um, ultimately tried, and they got off. And so this was a really um, terrible public relations disaster for uh, the rural ruling class in Wyoming. Now Owen Worcester, uh, this privileged guy, Harvard educated, friends with um, Theodore Roosevelt, was friends with some of these. Uh, members of the uh, Wyoming Stock Growers Association, including some of whom had um, participated in the, uh, uh, in the raid that um, had the backing of the governor and uh, even Benjamin Harrison sent in troops to, to um, uh, support them. In any event, um, Owen Worcester um, uh, heard stories about this and he, won- he, he then wrote his book, The Virginian, uh, which made the most privileged landowners look very good, okay? Uh, and so Owen Worcester was also a very conservative person. He would write articles in uh, Saturday evening, uh, you know, different different publications, I think Harper's uh, uh, Against Unions and that kind of thing. And so in 1907, C.W. Post, Post Serial, who's a member of the Citizens Industrial Association of America, an anti-labor guy, hires Owen Worcester to be on the Citizens Industrial Association of America's Public Relations Committee, a propaganda committee. This is a six or seven person committee. So Owen Worcester is one of the best known, the best known novelists in the world, right? And he works for this anti-union group doing public relations. And so his involvement in this group, I think, shows how prominent figures played a role in it. This was not a fringe, this is not some marginal group, right? We've got, we've got uh, governors in it. We've got sympathy from presidents like Theodore Roosevelt. We've got big name uh, uh, manufacturers like CW Post. We've got Owen Worcester in it, right? And so what Owen Worcester essentially does is he basically celebrates the role of, of um, strike breakers, of, of scabs, calling them heroes, Right. And so this is really important, I think, because one of the things the Citizens Industrial Association of America and citizens associations more broadly sought to do was to show that anti-union ideas um, were perfectly legitimate coming from um, ordinary people. Right. Uh, That is that the anti-union ideas were not these top down, uh, you know, um, creations, but that, you know, this is about. Uh, you know, protecting law and order and good citizenship against these lawless unionists, right? And so to get one of the leading authors in the world to be a part of this, I thought, you know, I think it's a big deal. Yeah, sounds like it. Yeah. Uh, sounds like there is also uh, a lot of overlap between your your terrorists, your enablers, and your uh, narrative makers. Um, is that something you came across a lot and does that help explain why they were you know so well connected and able to assert their ideas um yeah i mean 
certainly uh, J. West Goodwin ran it, you know, had his newspaper and was able to, you know, sort of disseminate his ideas while he also participated directly in these these sort of union busting um, events. Uh, D.B. McKay, another newspaper man, was involved in, in the kidnapping. So, yes, absolutely. There really was a lot of overlap. All right. Um, what um, what do the case studies in your book tell us about the relationship between capitalism and terrorism during this era? I think the um, I think we must appreciate how violent and repressive American society was compared to other industrialized countries. And I think there's a relationship between the fact that the United States became the dominant industrial powerhouse in the world and the fact that it had the most repressive labor relations. Uh, and so those, th- those two things are connected. I'm not discounting the importance of entrepreneurialism, patents, the great education, you know, the, uh, the great inventions and that kind of thing. That's, that's part of the story. But this darker story, I don't think, has been told as forcefully as I sought to tell it. And uh, we can do, a, a, you know, ask questions. What would have happened if there wasn't as much violence, right? Uh, you know, would, you know, would socialism take, take root? Uh, would uh, workers control uh, manufacturing, right? These, these are questions we can, we can ask, we can speculate about. But, you know, I really think that uh, when push came to shove, you know, violence uh, protecting private property was 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 such a was such a key uh, w- was really key to, uh, to 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 sizable numbers of these these business people who were involved in these uh, employers associations. Um, and maybe just a, a a question: Do you think that you know that we see movements for unionizing today in lots of places like Starbucks? Um, what kind kind of connections can you make between the tactics being used by Starbucks against their union or efforts to unionize and what we saw in the progressive era. Right, right. Well, today it's it's obviously much less violence, violent, excuse me. That doesn't mean there isn't violence that that occurs. Um, right now it's, it's the law, um, even though, uh, you know, um, Biden brought what Chris Smalls from Amazon to the White House. That's another campaign on, in, in addition to, to Starbucks. Uh, we don't see we have about 300 Starbuckses where the workers have voted to unionize, but zero contract, zero contracts here. Right. The laws are designed to allow employers to basically get away with it, even though the National Labor Relations Board has fined or has forced Starbucks to rehire some of the people that they have fired. Um they're uh, still fighting this thing. And so uh, if if we see mass movements of workers shutting down Starbucks everywhere, I think we will see um, a, a response from the state that could potentially be violent, right? What I'm imagining would be something involving, you know, striking workers, preventing strike breakers from crossing picket lines, and that would initiate calls to the police who would then, you know, I mean, when there are strikes, there's still, you know, violence periodically. And so uh, not as violent as it was back in the period I was interested in. That is the late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, But I could still imagine that happening. But in terms of ideology, I think there is considerable consistency, right? That is, employers in any period, right, want the ability to rule unilaterally. They don't want to share power. 
right? They want to call the shots and unions sort of threaten that, right? That's about sharing power. And so the open shop principle uh, remains, remains very strong. Um, well, we've taken up a lot of your time, so I'd like to ask you the traditional last question, and that is, uh, what are you working on next? So um, I'm interested. I'm doing a couple of projects at the moment. Um, the first is about the second clan, and I'm looking at the relationship between the second clan and uh, and business. I'm finding a lot of overlap with the second wave open shop movement, where there's uh, a lot of talk about you know a lot of flag waving. Uh, the uh, employers referred to the open shop movement in the uh, 1920s as the American plan, and the clan was all interested in 100% American ism, right? There's a lot of overlap there, union busting, that kind of thing. The um, uh, the strike during the Civil War involved about 4 million striking, you know, former enslaved people. In 1919, there was a strike of 4 million workers as well. So, you know, trying to find some parallels there. I'm also doing uh, in the beginning stages of a project that looks more broadly at um, a history of, of um, extra legal uh, conservatism, um, as opposed to intellectual or institutional conservatism. So we look at the January 6th riot. We look at these anti-LGBTQ events happening in bookstores and libraries, uh, anti-Black Lives Matter, um, violent protests at um, uh, school board meetings, right? I want to historicize this and go all the way back to uh, the anti-abolitionist mobs of the 1830s and 40s into the the Klan, look at uh, anti-labor stuff again, look at anti-civil uh, rights organizations. And so I study people I don't like, um, but, you know, sometimes I'm afraid I might get Stockholm syndrome. Really fascinating. Um, so I'd like to uh, thank you for, for joining me on the New Books Network. My guest was uh, Chad Pearson. The book is Capitals Terrorist. It's out now from uh, UNC Press. Thank you very much, Chad. Thank you so much. It's a great honor to be with you.